Welcome to My Teacher Friends Podcast. My name is John Peschel. After 21 years of teaching, I wanted to create a podcast to share stories, teaching tips, and inspiration. Each week, I'll be joined by one of my smart, talented, passionate teacher friends for a conversation about all things education. Join us, because there's no job as challenging or as rewarding as being a teacher. Thank you so much for downloading today's episode. It really means a lot to me. Today, I sat down with my good friend Kristen, who is a former high school math teacher, now a new teacher mentor. On today's episode, we talk about why learning math is so important. Kristen shares a teaching tip about responding to the invisible subtitle of what students are saying, and we talk about the phases of teaching that all teachers, especially new teachers, go through each and every year. Enjoy today's episode of My Friend Kristen. Well, welcome, Kristen. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for stopping over and doing this. I know it's a little out of your comfort zone, Mm -hmm. but I appreciate you uh, doing this, and I'm anxious to learn even more about you. I feel like uh, we've had a lot of educational talks. Mm -hmm. I feel like I know you pretty well as a teacher and as a person, as a neighbor as well, Um, but I'm anxious to get to know you a little bit more. So tell me a little bit about your educational history. Um, When did you know that you first wanted to be a teacher? Hmm. I got my um, undergrad in math education from UW-Whitewater in 1998. And that was after spending some time figuring out what I wanted to do. Because right out of high school, I went to UW-Eau Claire. I wanted to be a pharmacist. I thought I had to do something way more important, even though I think I always knew I wanted to be a teacher. Because you don't come up from a family of teachers. Not at all. Yeah. And a couple cute little stories. Um, My (laughs) kindergarten uh, picture, I am wearing a blue sweater with multicolored geometric shapes. And I ended up teaching geometry almost every year that (laughs) I taught. And so, is that you picking out your own outfits at five, six? I don't six, really or is think that your so. Parent? Okay. <laughs> I think you just had like a couple school outfits back right. then, and right. that was one of them that I had. Especially for picture day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then when I was in fifth grade, my brother was in second grade, and we had a desk at home and a board, and I taught him lessons. And I made worksheets that he had to work on, okay. and his second grade teacher, Mrs. LaRue, came to my classroom door and wanted to talk to me one day because she was teaching subtraction by borrowing, and Michael already knew how to do it, so she didn't have anything for him to do because <laughs> I had already taught him at home, at our school. I made my brother play school, too. Yes. He did not enjoy it at all. Yes. I don't know about your brother. But, like, I made him yeah. do worksheets for me. Oh, yes. And I would grade them. So yes. I totally get that. Um, And then when I was in high school, I was a junior in high school. My cousin was a senior at UW-Stevens Point. She had one course to finish up to graduate, and it was math that she had saved mm. till her final semester. And we went to the same high school. She came back to ask our math teacher for some help, and mm. he told her, 
get tutored by your cousin. So I had several little um, taps on the shoulder that maybe yeah. I should be a teacher, and I always kind of wanted to. Be- so when you were growing up in, in elementary school, middle school, high school, was part of your identity that like you were the girl that was good at math? That's kind of what I'm hearing from your story. Would you say that was true or no? I was. I was okay. I mean, I wasn't. I wasn't anything special. I wouldn't say, but I. I think not being one of the very top math students is what me what makes me better as a teacher. Being able mm. to help kids where I know they're going to struggle because I did. I, I was a good math student, but I wasn't stellar. Yeah. So, so you did have some struggle along mm-hmm. the way. So mm-hmm. all of these little things have kind of led you up. You didn't start out uh, going to school to be a teacher. No. But that's where you ended up, UW-Whitewater. Mm-hmm. Um, and so tell me about your uh, student teaching placement and what you learned through that. I student taught for six weeks in a middle school, sixth grade in Fort Atkinson. Okay. I don't remember a ton about it. Um, Because it was so long ago. And then 20 years ago, this semester, I student taught in Sun Prairie at the high school. I did. I didn't know that. Yes. And who was your cooperating teacher? uh, His name was Scott Meyer, and he's no longer here. He was a Sun Prairie grad. Okay. Um, He was a golf coach. So um, I student taught in the spring, and golf takes a lot of days. So I got a lot of experience right away on my own. And um, after I left Sun Prairie student teaching, I had to finish up at Whitewater and then um, got a job in January at Beloit Memorial. I taught there for a year and a half and got a call from Sun Prairie to come back. So I've been here ever since. Yeah. Um, Any hesitation about coming back to the place that you student taught. Sun Prairie wasn't home for you then, no. but you you had some connections. Um, were you excited to get that call? I was very excited to come back, and my family is from the area, not sure. Sun Prairie, but so it was good to get back. I was just starting to have nephews and mm-hmm. wanted to be, and I grew up on the same street as all my family, so I needed that back. Yeah. So. And so you taught math, high school level, for how many years? I taught for 16 years in Sun Prairie Okay. before I became a mentor. This is my second year that I'm finishing up right now as a teacher mentor. Right. So Kristen and I are both new teacher mentors. That's our full-time job. We work um, with with brand new teachers, first and second year teachers at different levels. You mostly have, you know, secondary. So like 7 through 12 mostly. Mm -hmm. And I um, am... K-6 mostly, right? There's a little bit of overlap for different things. but mm-hmm. um, So when that position came up, the new teacher mentor, mm-hmm. what, um, what excited you the most about the possibility of this new role and the challenges and the um, gifts that it could bring? I had kind of unexpectedly worked my way up through all of our math curriculum. I didn't think that I would be teaching calculus when I did. Um, That was kind of a course that the people that were in their last five years before they retired taught. So I think it's time for me to retire right now. (laughs) Um, 
But when our previous teacher retired, she thought I should take that on. And um, I taught Calculus AB, which is equivalent to Calc 1, and eventually brought in Calculus BC and worked my way up through that. And I was um, department chair at the time. And I just felt I had done a lot of things within the department and within math that I was ready for something different and to get into more of the instructional practices with mentoring and working with new teachers was something that really excited me. So yeah, yeah. I wanted to do that. And so what, what do you see next in your world? I mean, you're, you're enjoying your job. You mm-hmm. are um, sticking around in the job for a while. Uh, what do you, what do you see um, in five years? Well, in a couple weeks, I will be starting a program with Concordia University to pursue my principal and director of instruction licenses. I feel like that's just a good fit with with the instructional work that I do now right. with mentoring that both of us do. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what I want to do with it and if I want to use it. It just seems like the right thing to do and then see what's out there and see how things kind of unfold. So I'll start that program in a couple of weeks and then hopefully finish up within the next couple of years. Yeah. And you, when you were a teacher, so I kind of, I'm kind of jumping back here. You were also a coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, I so was. talk to me about uh, what, what did you coach? I coached mostly I coached volleyball and I coached a little bit of basketball as a high school athlete, I wanted to be involved in basketball forever. Right. And that was... basketball was... really your number one and volleyball number two when you were growing up? Yeah. And okay. softball, okay. It, it's hard to decide, but basketball was definitely my number one. Okay. I thought I was going to marry Michael Jordan. It <laughs> okay. hasn't happened. Okay. Um, so I took my first job in Beloit and I grew up working with um, children's programs and and things like that, mostly with basketball. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I worked at Beloit, I did coach girls basketball and girls volleyball at the freshman level. And when I came to Sun Prairie, there weren't really opportunities for basketball. And I was starting to realize maybe I really didn't want to do that anymore anyway. Oh, okay. And... I was able to join the volleyball coaching staff, a lot of dear friends on that staff, right. and I did it for seven or eight years at the freshman level. At that level, it was really successful. Mm-hmm. I loved it, but I realized I didn't really want any more than that, where I used to think mm. I wanted to be a varsity coach, right. and that was my number one thing, but... I have more priorities than that. So yeah, I um, you know, I I'm a coach as well, mm-hmm. and so just finishing up my 14th year of coaching forensics, mm-hmm. so speech and debate, which is is different but similar to coaching a um, athletic sport. Uh, what would you say is was your favorite part of coaching, and what do you what would you say was um, the most challenging part of coaching? The best part, which goes through all of my classroom work in math classes, is just the relationship piece yeah. with kids. And 
I was involved with coaching, but also in seasons where I wasn't coaching, I would work um, the table for basketball or whatever sport there happened to be. I'd work track meets. So not just being the math teacher, but also being that person that kids saw at all those events really makes a huge connection. So that was my favorite part of it. I bet that was cool, too, if you were a freshman volleyball coach, Mm -hmm. but teaching some t- some upper level courses yes. like it would be two years later or so where you would have some of those students in your classes yes in fact one girl that I taught or coached freshman volleyball mm-hmm. became one of my geometry students sophomore year that happened often right and finished having her as a geometry student and then the whole summer went by And my roommate, we got a phone call, and she said this woman wanted to talk to me. It was a mom of a student, and I thought, why would this parent be calling me at home in the summer? It was very weird. Uh, Got on the phone with her, and she just chit-chatted with me. And and that kind of goes to the relationship that was built with not only students but with families as well. And it turned out the reason she was calling was because she wanted to set me up with a guy. And I've been <laughs> married to him for 12 years now. Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding you. So a parent of a student that you had in volleyball and then in class calls you up and says, there's this guy that I really want you. Yes. That's so weird. I did not know this part. Yes, of the story. that is what happened. So it and was really are. volleyball mm-hmm. that brought you and your husband together. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. So best part has been relationship. And I I would agree with that. So I taught elementary school and then would coach high school. And so I never, I never had students in my class at the same time. Right. Um, Or after the experience, the coaching was the after experience. Mm -hmm. I had them in, you know, third or fifth grade. And then I would have them in coaching. What, what do you think was the biggest challenge in coaching it, and teaching and, and all of that? I think it goes right along with that. Leaving coaching was really hard. I, I did leave when I um, was going to have my first child. Uh, my husband travels for work and I didn't, I didn't really want to do it anymore. I want to do this family thing. Right. And, but leaving kids... And not having that relationship, besides being the math teacher, was really hard for me. And, um, you know, I try to still fit in, but less and less people know you in that fashion Mm -hmm. any longer. So that was difficult. And because I coached in Beloit, I, and then I moved to Sun Prairie, the athletes from Beloit would come up to play against Sun Prairie and they would bring their math homework and they would come. They were just waiting for me to be there to help oh. them with their math or just hang out. You know, so I missed those relationships with the kids I had in Beloit. And then um, just not being able to be the coach any longer was hard. But I still worked games and then eventually that went away. And yeah. now now that I'm not a classroom teacher, I walk in buildings and a lot of times it feels like people look at me like, who is this person? So that's hard for me to not have the the connections with kids like I used to. Yeah, I think I think my biggest struggle with teaching and coaching was just departmentalizing my brain 
in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, I would find myself thinking about coaching when I needed to be thinking about teaching and then vice versa. I would be thinking about lesson planning and, and things about teaching when I was coaching. And sometimes it was hard for me to make that switch. And often my switch would be like on a dime, right? Like the bell rings at the end of the day and then I need to go and be a coach. Yeah. And that was that was a hard balance for me. Did you struggle with that? I don't remember anything with that. Okay. No. So I guess it was just me. Yes, it was just you. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to move on to the next section. It's the timed test section. So oh, as boy. a math teacher, um, when you were in third grade, fourth grade, did you have timed multiplication tests? Yeah. Okay. It always freaked me out. It was the most stressful part of third grade year was the time test. So I'm going to flip the table here and okay. have give you a timed test. And it's going to be a little bit different than others that I have done on okay. the podcast. So you will have one minute. Okay. And I will, I'll set a timer on, on my phone here. You'll have one minute to explain to me your answer to the question why is math important? Why do we have to do it? Right. So this is this is the question that you were asked how often? How often were you asked this question by your students or by parents or by family and friends? All the time. Okay, all the time. <laughs> and to give me one minute, John, isn't a thing for me. You know I, know, I know. That's why that's why it's a real challenge. So yes. in one minute, I want you to tell me why learning math is important. Are you up for the challenge? Are you ready? I think so. Okay. Ready, set, go. So in math, we learn a lot of formulas. We learn um, all kinds of applications and things like that. And it's not necessarily that we're going to take those specific formulas with us, Um into the real world. Some people definitely will, but it's more about the growth with brain research and things like that and what kind of connections you're making and growth. So for example, if I ask you what's two plus four and you say six, no connections have been made whatsoever. And um, when we are involved in deep problem solving and we have tools to choose from, we are able to make those connections and math really helps us with that brain development. That's it. That's have, it. It was exactly, that was one minute. No, I am so, I'm like, I haven't even gotten started on this. Like that's not an answer. That's, that's part of the challenge, right? No. What, what else would you like to add? I will, I will let you go past, past your timed one minute. Um, you know, I, but the reason I bring it up is because, you know, that's that's one of those questions that never seems to leave. Right. And that what I just said wouldn't be acceptable to a lot of people, but it it we think about how we want our kids to be problem solvers not only with what they're going to do in their job, but just decisions that they're going to make in life and their brains aren't wired that way right away. And that critical thinking piece that we do in math. Now, along the way, we have um, the Pythagorean theorem and all these different things that help us with that. Right. But like I said, not everybody's going to use that forever. Um, but it does help develop those skills 
that we need to make good decisions. So I, I equate it to um, people in the medical field. I've talked to some people, um, for example, a physical therapist who said, I know I needed to take calc in college, not because I'm using any of those skills when I'm doing physical therapy, but because a patient will present themselves with um, symptoms, issues, and somebody in the medical field, a doctor, whatever, has to take what, take that information, the tools that they have, and make a guess as to how they're going to approach it. And in math, you do that too. Sometimes you run into a dead end, and you got to go back and start over, and that's okay. And I think we've made people think that if you well, you didn't do it right, then that's a bad thing. But it really helps with being able to go back again, reevaluate, and figure out what tools you're going to use. So in the medical field, um, it's not an exact science, mm-hmm. and sometimes you have to go back and, and take another guess, and sometimes the treatment works, and sometimes it doesn't, and you have to go back to the drawing table. So that's kind of a way that I like to equate math. You feel better about that answer now that you had a little bit more time. A little bit better. <laughs> I think I think you answered it well. All okay, good. Thank All you. good. We're gonna move on to um, the next section, and kind of the rest of our conversation is really gonna focus on some tips, some tricks, and some learning that we have learned together um, through our work as new teacher mentors, working on instructional strategies that elevate teaching and learning in classrooms K-12. So um, I asked you to kind of think of a teaching tip you wanted to share, and um, you have picked one that that you learned earlier this school year, right? Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about it. So we've had a lot of focus on our students. Again, this goes back to relationships and a lot of social and emotional learning for kids, a lot of trauma that comes with all of our kids. So we need to keep all those things in mind when we are having interactions with all kids. That's so important. Kids now are different than they were 10 years ago or 20 years ago around the time that we started teaching. Correct. So this really resonated with me when I heard a speaker talking about this. And if you think about... Something that a student says or does that really triggers you, that just, you know, makes you want to go from zero to 60, just like that. And really trying to figure out how you're going to react to that in a more positive way to get a better outcome with kids. So think about that situation. And then instead of responding right away to it, stepping back and thinking about what is a possible invisible subtitle for that what is the kid actually screaming for or asking Mm. for or needing or whatever that might be and what you're thinking might be the invisible subtitle may not be what they are needing at that moment Mm -hmm. but it's not going to do you any good to respond in a negative way either so thinking of an invisible subtitle and then responding to that instead. So for example, yeah, talk me through an example. So sure. what would be like a trigger and maybe you can you can rely on your math experience or maybe something that you you know is a trigger for you. Mm-hmm. So just a student, let's just take something simple that a lot of people deal with. A student who 
is sitting with their head down, maybe their hood up, or just will not engage in something. And, and some, you know, maybe it's been time after time after time, and we get really frustrated with that. And maybe you've already had a couple conversations, but approaching the student just with a gentle reminder to um, be engaged with what, whatever is happening, and then figuring out a time when you can talk one-on-one with them. And um, so maybe the student says when you're trying to get them to take their hood down and sit up is, I just don't care about this. I don't want to do it. Mm. Um, Maybe the possible subtitle that that kid is saying is like they really do care, but they have no idea where to start and they don't want to be the one embarrassed. And, you know, maybe they're working in a group of four in a math class. That's pretty typical now. And they don't want to be the one that looks dumb or whatever feeling might come from that. And so the teacher response may be, you know, going back to something to help them get back into where all the other students are in their group to make them feel more comfortable. So instead of responding to the I don't care, Mm -hmm. while this is important, you have to do it or, um, you know, everyone else is doing it. If, if a teacher has an inkling that really what could be the subtitle to this is that they don't know where to start, right? the teacher could respond with that, right? So what, what might that sound like? So if I'm thinking the subtitle is, I don't even know where to start, I'm just too frustrated with it, right. the teacher re- response might be, um, if you take a look at this part, you know, X part of the problem and why don't you figure out this? I'll be back in 42 seconds to check on you, and then we'll look at the next part and just walk away right. and put it in the kid's hand. Um, but try to give them something to latch on to so that they can do it and um, come back after that and just let them know you're going to continue to help them in that way um, and keep a positive voice through it all instead of just getting angry automatically. It makes me think about, you know, choice words and the power of our words and Mm -hmm. how we can help students develop that growth mindset. Sure. Within that. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a great uh, tip. So um, can you think of another example of how that might be used? Anything that you've seen or you think back to your teaching days um, on another example of how we would how we would see a situation differently. Sure. So a student that might do something really acting out, like maybe they're angry, they're shouting. Um, we have, again, we have to remember all those trauma, traumatic situations. Some of our kids have, whether it be at home or just with bullying at school, things like that. So in your class, um, when they may shout out or something, the invisible subtitle may be, I just, I was late for school this morning because my mom wouldn't get out of bed and um, bring me here this morning. And then it turned into a yelling match. I mean, all these kinds of things happen. So that might be the invisible subtitle. And my response might be, I'll give you a little bit of time and and I'll be back and, you know, don't say one minute, but... (laughs) Something yeah. catchy like 67 seconds and right. we will um, figure out a next step or something like that. Um, 
is there anything that I can help you with? Can I support you in any way? And just seeing what the kid will allow you to have, but keeping it positive so that they feel like if they're going to open up, they have that opportunity to do it because they trust you as another adult. Yeah. So it's the tip is really to respond to what you think the subtitle might be. Correct. Even if it's not, even if you're not sure what it really right. is. Um, what a great tip. Thank you for sharing sure. that. Um, I think, I think as I head back into the classroom, that will, um, that will be something that I carry with me. Mm -hmm. So, um, so next we're going to kind of dive a little bit deeper into some learning that, that we have done together around the attitudinal phases of new teachers. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to kind of turn the conversation over to you. So now you're kind of in charge of the conversation and talk us through, um, this learning that you have and kind of what it says about the cycle of a teaching year. Okay. So this was brought to me by another mentor and it's called phases of first year teachers attitudes toward teaching. And when you are in this new job, you're full of a lot of anticipation you kind of on a high getting ready for the year and you have this idea in your mind of what this job is going to look like and you're excited and um, you're planning you're getting to know the people around you totally and sounds like like august yes like august september right we're Absolutely. excited um and i think everyone can relate to when they start a new job right that, that anticipation mm -hmm. and even if we're talking about first year teachers now, but even if you're a 20 year veteran teacher, you can go into a new year with a lot of anticipation as yeah. well. So this isn't something just for them. It, the stages might look a little bit different, but we're, we're going into the year. We have a lot of anticipation and then start working and realize there's a lot more to this job, especially as a new teacher, than what we knew about before. Mm -hmm. um, we're trying to work with every kid, and there may be issues at home that they're bringing in. Um, we got to figure out different ways to get lessons to kids so that mm -hmm. they can access the learning. Um, there are building policies. There's all these things that maybe we didn't anticipate and we just kind of start to feel like we're drowning a little bit. So we go into survival mode. And so that in that phase, we kind of dip down a little bit with our attitude because we are just close to running on empty and we're just getting through the day all so the, the time. So the first phase kind of is, is August and September typically, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that's called anticipation. Correct. And then as the year goes on, we dip into survival, survival, mm -hmm. survival. And that, um, is there kind of a month connection to that? When, uh, when does that start? Maybe end of September and October. Right. We're looking at getting into survival mode and just kind of keeping, keeping up with everything. Yeah. So what's and the everybody. third phase? That's disillusionment. And that's when we really dip down, um, maybe after first quarter, November, ish into December where there's just so much. And, and at this point we have family maybe starting to notice that 
we're not spending the time with them that we want. Mm. And um, a lot of your schoolwork is taking up so much time from other areas of your life. That work-life balance really gets disrupted during that Correct. winter time, right? Correct. Grades are done uh, for secondary, some uh, the end of the semester. Mm-hmm. Um, some of that stuff is coming out. You could have parent-teacher conferences yep. in there. For a so, first time ever. Yeah, so very stressful. There's a stressful. lot of work mm-hmm. going into that. And so that starts in kind of November. And how long does this disillusionment phase last? Into January, maybe a little bit into February. And, you know, in that time period, we're, we're finishing the first semester. Some people may start a course over again at semester time, especially at the secondary level. So that can be very helpful to feel like, okay, I get to start over again and I get to improve what I did before. And, but, but January gives us with winter break and the end of the semester gives us a little time to reflect on the, on the school year thus far and in many ways start over again, or you get a sense that I'm starting to figure this thing out Mm -hmm. and moving into February, we get into this rejuvenation phase where, okay, I'm going to take what I've learned and really apply some things and, that lasts through, you know, maybe spring break time. We, mm-hmm. we, we always have a little bit of a hard time getting to spring break. Right. Yeah. Um, but then that time of the year comes and let's say March, April, we get, we're getting to the end of the year and I really start to hear teachers saying a lot, oh my gosh, I have these ideas for next year. Next year I'm going to do this or I'm going to try this differently because this is how it went this year and I want it to be different. So we really get into this reflection in in April, May, um, trying to figure out things for next year, but finishing the year off really positively as well. And I think that's also a time, that reflection time is also a time that teachers can look back at the whole year and realizing through the difficulty, they've really had some successes throughout the year. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's hard to know until you're getting to the end product and you're seeing all the growth kids have made or growth you have made with kids throughout the year. Yeah. And then we get into the summer months again and we're right back to that anticipation phase. Right. And it just starts all over again and the dip down into a disillusionment may not be as low as last time, but we all go through these phases each year. And so there I'm are just, five phases throughout the year. Can you just kind of name them all? As, sure. Just to get a, an image of that. So we start with anticipation. And then as the fall months come through, we go into survival. And then into the winter disillusionment where we really dip down. And then start to come back up with rejuvenation in the spring and then reflection towards the end of the year. Excellent. I, you know, again, these are kind of labeled as, as phases of a first-year teacher. But I, I agree that this is something that every year as a teacher, I have gone through some form of this cycle, right. these phases. Have you as well? I have. And coming into this role as a teacher mentor, it was almost going back to a first year teacher again, because I had a lot of anticipation. I was really excited 
about this new job and what I got to do. And then I started learning. I didn't realize everything that was involved in this job. I mean, I love it, mm-hmm. but I just, I didn't know what, all these things. And I, I, I like to do things just right and perfectly. So you do dip down into that survival. So I, I want to do what's best for all my teachers. I want to do what's best for the students through the teachers and then disillusionment. Um, of course, I didn't go as, as low as I did as a first-year teacher. Right. I remember my crying nights and things oh, as a first-year teacher. I cried so much my first year. Yes. And the late, I, 1030 at night. Um, I remember that. So I, I really try to keep that in my mind as I am working with new teachers and they're going through these same phases at the same time. So why, why do you think this learning and identifying these phases is good for all of us to know? So when I was shown this at the beginning, I thought, why would I want to show this to first year teachers? Because it sounds kind of dreary. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But I have presented it to teachers and they feel just this sense of relief like I am normal and we we do have an article that we share with teachers that goes along with this and when they start reading it you know they say this is me this is me I did that or my boyfriend said that or um they can identify with a lot of things Mm -hmm. that are in the article so it's super important for them to know this is quote unquote normal and you're going to feel this way. It's a tough job. A lot of jobs when you get into a new job. This is difficult. So every time I've shown this, the teachers have been so thankful that they've seen it. And then they're able to, in future meetings, reflect back and say, I think I'm in this part now. And they, they can really identify with them and tell the difference. So very important. I, I also feel like, it's for me, it's been a good reminder. This learning is a good reminder to not make any rash decisions during those disillusionment months. Right. Um, I actually um, applied for a new job and left a, a job um, during this time, mm. during this disillusionment time. It was, um, it was a tough year and some postings were coming out and during disillusionment, um, I applied for another job and then finished out the year, you know, before I went to that. But I think it's important not to make any rash decisions mm-hmm. during that disillusionment, mm-hmm. right? That, right. Um, we've had, we've had some teachers walk away from teaching during that halfway through the year. And I wonder if, if they would have really known about these phases, if that would have helped them feel more normal and sure. stuck with the profession. Yep. So um, I think that's that's another piece of learning and some advice, I guess, that I would give is to not um, not make any decisions, rash decisions during that time. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, so we're going to end our conversation with um, you sharing some advice. So the final question that I have is what advice would you give to someone entering their first years of teaching? And what advice would you give to someone entering their last years of teaching? So you can en- answer those separately or together, but um, share a little wisdom uh, with us before we wrap up. So for 
beginning teachers, I think it's really important that you understand that not only is it important that you're getting through content and all these things, but there's so many more pieces that, that really make things the world go around for us in education. And that's relationships. That's the most important part, relationships with your kids, relationships with your colleagues, um, administrators, all those kinds of things, but especially the kids and the families. And I think that's, I think that's really important that we need to remember that even in secondary world, right? That relationships are key and and just as important as content Mm -hmm. absolutely and i also think coming in understand that it's so powerful and important to be a reflective practitioner Mm. whether that be on a lesson that you taught or whether it be on um, a conversation you had with a kid that maybe didn't go as well as you wanted it to or um Always being reflective because we always have room to do better all the time. And if we look at this job with that growth mindset, it's going to be so much better for everybody. Yeah. Is that the advice that you would give to someone entering their last years as well? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because we're never finished. Right. We're always learning. And, you know, this job that I'm in right now, you asked me earlier if I was excited about it and, and, you know, moving, what was I excited about for moving into this job? But it's, I'm learning so much again, which is great. You know, so if I do go back into the classroom, I just have so much more knowledge about how to work with kids. And, um, and that's important too, is not that I taught math or anything. It's that I work with kids. I teach kids. And with that, we will end it. Thank you so much for joining me today and stepping out of your comfort zone to be on this podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's fun. And that's it for this episode of My Teacher Friends. I'd love to know what you think of the podcast. Send me an email at myteacherfriendspodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to like the show on Facebook at My Teacher Friends Podcast. Please be sure to tell another teacher friend and subscribe on Apple Podcast or podbean.com. That's podbean.com. Until next time, remember, celebrate and nurture every child every day.